Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 999 with Toby Nidets. Well, uh, I tell people that if you're ready to lose half a million dollars, let's, let's go. Let's open a restaurant. But, you know, so far it hasn't scared anybody. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. Founded by Josh Sharkey, a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 years, Mies organizes, shares, preps, and scales your recipes like never before. Plus, you can get laser accurate food cost and nutrition analysis faster than you could even imagine. If you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies is built for you. Get started by visiting getmees.com slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable and as a listener of restaurant unstoppable podcast you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today with invoice processing you can link all of your purchases to ingredients in your recipes and the most current cost will be automatically reflected in every recipe revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with me's This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp this episode is brought to you by one huddle a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce with one huddle you can onboard new employees up to 45 percent faster there was actually a study done by the university of south florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45 percent faster this just isn't fluff this is real stuff one huddle this new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. With excitement, <laughs> allow me to introduce to you today's guest, host of Restaurant Legends 
podcast. Toby Nidets Toady. Are you Toady? Toady. Toby. <laughs> are you feeling unstoppable today? Yeah, I am. If, once you learn how to talk. Yeah, yeah I know. I, no matter, like, I, I get, I knock it out of the park during the pre interview chat. And then yeah. once we hit record, like, I just forget how to talk. Yeah, I do it all okay. the time. I don't know what the problem is. Uh, but I am super psyched to have you here, man. You are uh, so respected in the industry. You've been in the industry for as long as probably you've been working. Well, actually, I started when I was like 10 in my dad's restaurant. Yeah. Actually, that's the menu for it up there. Oh, that's so cool. I'll figure out a photo of that before we leave. Okay. So you spent your entire life and career in this industry. Yeah. You've uh, worked for amazing people. I know that Let Us Entertain You was a big part of your career. Yeah, only. early on, yeah. Yeah, and um, who knows who else you've worked with. We're going to unpackage all that in today's conversation. Okay, all right. Uh, and we're going to talk about some things that are near and dear to your heart, uh, like the issue of tipping. And yeah. who knows what else uh, okay. before we get into the conversation steer, share your story and share your perspectives let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us well uh i tell people that they should get out of the restaurant business if they don't know how to do it or some clients come to me and uh with brand new concepts and never been in the business before i'll tell them if you're ready to lose half a million dollars let's let's go let's open a restaurant but right uh, you know, so far it hasn't scared anybody. And, you know, they'll open these restaurants. I had one client who opened a deli. He was ready to lose the money. He was okay with it. And then closed the deli uh, three years after opening. Only because he didn't think he was making any money. Because he wouldn't do the price increases like I told him he had to do. He wanted to keep it reasonable. But but that was uh, in ni- mm, 19. It was corned beef sandwich, a very thick corned beef sandwich. It's only charging fourteen bucks, you know. And today, that same thick corned beef sandwich is like twenty five. Yeah, and I think that's where I mean, we know that two things that you already pointed out: um, restaurants fail because they're undercapitalized, mm-hmm. uh, and they also fail because they're afraid to charge what they're worth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and I think what's unreasonable is how the industry has gotten so, you know, I mean, it's fiscal responsibility isn't a bad thing. It's, a, it's, the only, it's the only way to exist, you know. And I, we need it. I think people think about we, we want to be generous. I think it's mm-hmm. in our nature to be generous and to give. But at the end of the day, you're never going to do the amount of volume you need to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, unless you have 500 seats and they're and you got to line out the door. You right. got to charge what the the value is to get your ROI. You got to reverse yeah. engineer it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome way to get this thing started. So, and I, I joke all the time. My my first goal with Restaurant Unstoppable. I mean, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. The, the, there should be like a subtitle mission statement mm-hmm. and to talk you out of starting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for those who want it, you know, like go for it. I'm not trying to discourage people, but at the same time, I think it's important for, and I'm sure you feel the same way, that we have to be transparent. Well, sure. I mean, the first one of the first guys I ever worked for was Rich Melman who turned Let Us Entertain You into this mammoth thing. But he opened uh, R.J. Grunts, uh, really on a shoestring. He had one partner. And I think he told me that he had R.J. Grunts paid off in about a year. Wow. And uh, that's very unusual for the early 70s, but even more unusual today. But, uh, you know, he learned that lesson that, you know, if you put the right amount of money into it, and charge the right amount of money, you, you'll survive and you'll even thrive. Right. And later on, he kind of learned how to work the whole developer thing where they build restaurants for him. Right. So. Yeah. Um, did, was that vertical integration or did you just contract that out? What? The uh, developers. Oh, the developers? They No, they just they come to you. I mean, it's uh, 
you know, they see its success at one location. They've got another location that they want to do. And they want somebody who's going to pay the rent. Yeah. They want somebody <laughs> to pay the rent. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love that and I hate that at the same time because you see a lot of these strip malls that explode across the country. These, these developers that just have, I don't know how many projects going at once and they're mm-hmm. all cookie cutter. They're all the same buildings just in different parts of the mm-hmm. country mm-hmm. who have these established relationships with franchises mm-hmm. and then they just go open franchises and strip malls all over the place. And, uh, yeah. It's a it's a successful business model. Yeah. Um, it is. But at the same time I wonder like is there a better way for like the communities and is there a way to keep that money local? I mean, I get that franchises aren't ev- evil. I've kind of evolved a little bit over the time. I think but, they're evil. <laughs> I mean, they they do provide opportunity. It's weird. There's a balance, but I think there's a a size that's right. Yeah. You know, like a regional franchise with 20 locations is that evil? No, uh, yes, yes and no. Uh yes in the fact that it's a static menu that never changes. And yes, that that menu is developed off of products that are not local. Right. Uh, so that makes it a little evil. But you can still use the franchise model. Okay, give me, yeah. let me give you an example. Yeah. Imagine there's a chicken farm in yeah. this area, right? And um, there's a restaurateur and a farmer that pair up. And the the farmer, the restaurateur says, I'm going to buy my chickens all from you from yeah. down the street. And with your humane practices and all the things you do, uh, I'm going to take the chickens. I'm going to make a chicken salad restaurant. I'm going to make a chicken wing restaurant. I'm going to do a fried chicken, chicken tender. is best right now. Yeah. Or yeah. like a fried chicken restaurant, right? Um, so you create micro regional franchises and yeah. you use, use all the byproduct. You even make soup. Yeah. With the broth, sure, right? Sure. So I think you can use the model of franchising for systems, processes, and scalability, oh, and sure. branding. But oh, I think sure. you, if you, if you implement those within with conscious capitalism, you know, so yeah, like, it, that helps absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but there's something that always gets in the way with that, with that local, local, uh, you know, business thing going on. Uh, a lot of guys have that dream to do it, but then when pricing gets out of control, you know, they go back to a broadline distributor and right. start buying iced chicken. But uh, you know, the franchise model is good because it allows other people to get into the business who have no training whatsoever, have never owned a restaurant before. They have developed a, a pretty good bank uh, bank account, so they've got the money to do it. And if the franchise is good, they give them excellent training and you know, take them to the point where they, they're operating at the same level as everybody else. If they don't, they fail. And uh, there are some franchises out there that will you know, give them two weeks training in an existing restaurant and then sets them off on their own. And that's, that's not enough. I mean, you got to really work a restaurant, every position, six months maybe before you, you really should open your own doors. Right. So. For sure. Um, I have had a, a few people on the show who had zero restaurant experience mm-hmm. and they wanted to open a restaurant. So the way that they broke into the restaurant industry. So they're like usually people who have money, they were successful in other careers. Mm-hmm. They've always had this dream of opening their own restaurant. They don't, they never worked in a restaurant. So they, they join a franchise. So yeah. Uh, Chula is, I think, the name of the restaurant out of like Washington. Okay. It's, a, it's an Indian restaurant uh, franchise. Mm-hmm. But she bought into the Five Guys franchise, mm. killed it, mm-hmm. made another fortune, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also learned so much about the business of restaurants by using someone else's model and just getting in there. Right? Oh, yeah. So I think there's 
this podcast has opened my eyes. I I don't think the franchise model is one that I love, but I, I'm just saying like I don't think everything's as evil as it as I once did. Sure, you know sure. I think there there are benefits to different verticals of the industry. It's, well, yeah, my demonic look at franchises yeah. it's really more from the menu side and uh, from sustainability, the sustainability, and the fact that it's the same menu everywhere you go, and it never changes. Right, you know, it'll change maybe twice a year, both. By adding a few, you know, special offers. And that's is that because of your passion for food, or no? It's it's my definition of a restaurant. Uh, a restaurant should be local and should have uh, sustainable products from the local area, or not. It really, it really doesn't matter. But the the restaurant really needs to change its menu uh, with season. You know, seasonality I think is very important. Uh, product availability is very important creativity is very important and it's not like everybody should be a thomas keller which we'll get into later i don't think that's a restaurant yeah. anyway <laughs> uh but there's there's something about that you know that neighborhood feel and that's what we've lost with franchises i 100 percent agree that generally speaking the restaurant industry has become much more transactional yeah and if you look at the history of restaurants, where where the restaurant industry was born, maybe you can go about as far back if you want to, like the Rome, or uh, the, I, think, I think that's like the first records of restaurants. They were like yeah, they fifty were, miles apart or something. Ex- like well, that. and there were street foods. Actually, that's yeah. all they were. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the I mean, if you really want to go back, we could talk about anthropology. How, <laughs> like it was like you know, like we use food for social status. You know, well, like, trading the, and using food. Like you, I watched. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, the, the first real restaurants that uh, we know as restaurants started in pre-revolutionary France uh, when they were just open to uh, the nobility, and that was it. You know, there were these small little chef-driven restaurants that would change menus, or they'd have one item, and that's that's the restaurant. But they were being sat at tables. They were being served their own portions, uh, which prior to that, eating was... Uh, more communal. They'd go to buffets, you know, at at their it's castles whatever you or whatever. Killed. <laughs> yeah, whatever you killed, that's what yeah. you ate. But uh, you know, that whole model of the restaurant, you know, has changed over the years. But uh, that's the that's the core right there, is the fact that there's a guy in the kitchen cooking what he loves to cook. Call him a chef. Call him whatever you want, and he's got people coming in to eat that food because they like his food. Yeah, they like the decor. They like the ambiance, whatever location. Yeah, and I mean the other the the other thing that I think we, like so along this this domain that we kind of lost what restaurants were. <laughs> when you look at the United States, and I, I echo this a lot. Like, did you did you know that if you wanted to start a town in the United States, like in the I don't know maybe like the 16th century, maybe it was the 17th century or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, if you wanted to start a town. Um, no, sorry, it was the 18th century, 1700s, and during the 1700s, 18th, 18th century. Yeah. Um, when you, if you want to start a town, <coughs> you needed to put a pub in. Yeah. First. Yeah. Like before a post office, before a church, right. it was a rule that you need to establish a public house. Yeah. Before you had a town, and that's where everything happened. And the people that owned those public hub houses, 
they were literally the mayors. Yeah. They were influencers. Yeah. They yeah. made change. They, yeah. they took care of their people. They were the center of that town, the center yeah. of that community. Right. Right. And I do agree with you that we've gotten so far away from that, but you're seeing, I think you're seeing it come back a little bit. People are starting to realize. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, whether it's, I think there's a lot more neighborhood restaurants going right now than really ever before. Uh, and fewer franchise restaurants in urban areas. Rural areas is another story, but uh, you know there's there's a trend I think to want to have an exciting restaurant that is local, it's sustainable, it's uh, creative. You know the chef or whoever is in the kitchen doing whatever they like to cook, which is what the original restaurants were. That's the model I think the whole industry really needs to go to. It's not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we'll get into why you think that's the way we have to go, but okay. I do want to share your story. Okay. So you grew up in the restaurant industry. Two restaurant business podcasters, you know, we're going to go down some tangents today. <laughs> uh, you grew up in the restaurant industry. Your dad, or your dad owned a restaurant, right? You already talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. Right uh, yeah. He had a, actually, it started with my grandfather. I've got a picture of him over there standing at his bar in 1918. Wow. Yeah. So it's been in the family for a long time. But uh, at my dad's restaurant, I'd be picked up at school by my mom and driven to the restaurant. And there I made little cups of coleslaw or filled the barbecue sauce cups. Uh, Every once in a while, he'd let me bread the chicken for the roasted chicken. But uh, after that, I really I wanted to get into uh, theater and film in high school and was on my way until New York University uh, denied my acceptance. So I went to my next best uh, love, and that was cooking. And uh, went to an apprenticeship for a year and uh, worked in a couple of restaurants. Was elevated way too fast to the word chef, way before I was ready. The first restaurant I did was uh, called Tango. And it was a seafood, kind of a seafood restaurant, done in uh, the French style. And the owner... Uh, was very forgiving of, of what I did to run the kitchen for a while. <laughs> How was, old are you at this point? Uh, 23. Very forgiving of what I did to run the restaurant. So what do you mean by that? Well, uh, because I didn't run it very well. I yeah. created a great menu with some great food, but I couldn't produce it all the time. The restaurant would get busy and the kitchen would collapse. Right. The uh, couple of days before I actually left, I had forgotten to order the produce. Oh man! And but I had dreamt that I ordered the produce. Oh, so I'm sitting around all day doing prep and stuff, and waiting for the produce guy to arrive. Finally, I call him in the afternoon and say, "Well, no, where's our stuff?" He said, "You never placed an order." Oh, so you'd think that they would call if they had a regular customer. Like you never placed. You think, yeah, but they didn't. (laughs) And uh, so it finally came, and we finally got ready. But. the, the real camel, the straw that broke the camel's back was one Saturday night. The uh, wait staff was just abusive because food wasn't coming out. And uh, I was working the line. And one server, I forgot her name, was just yelling at me. I mean, you know, like berating me completely. And I had a, a coquille Saint-Jacques, which is a scallops in a cream sauce and a little coquille shell. And I said, okay, this is enough. Just flipped it up. Landed on the ceiling, sauce side up, so it's stuck there. <laughs> and I just walked off the line. 
And this was your first. It was my first chef job. First chef job. Yeah, yeah. So reflecting, I mean, one of the things I like to do, reflecting back, I mean, what would what advice would you have given yourself during this time, knowing what you know now? Uh, not to hire me as a chef, you know, maybe a sous chef at, at best. But here I was in the early seventies, and I was the only guy, or very few guys, who had actual formal training. You know, most guys were just being trained on the job. The guys with formal training were these. Uh, kind of snooty Europeans. They were French, they were Swiss, they were German. You know, and they were they were concentrated mostly in hotels. So to have that opportunity to be a chef so young, I grabbed it. And then uh, Rich Melman brought me on to Let Us Entertain You just as a consultant where I'd uh, create dishes for him. Or he'd send me to a restaurant to steal a dish, you know, find out how it's made and bring it back to him. And we did a couple of research trips like that. But then I fell into that pattern of being a chef again and was named their executive chef. First one they've ever had. Were you still 23 when he was contracting you out to go? 25. 25. So a couple yeah. years after. A couple years. Yeah. So, you know, after you know my first experience as a chef, and being asked to be executive chef for Let Us Entertain You, I said, sure, why not? Right. So that was your first chef, chef job was this job that you told us where yeah. you, you know you weren't able to reproduce the food consecutively, but the food was amazing. If it you was. got busy, though, forget about it. Right. Uh, the second chef job you had was executive chef under one of Rich Malman's restaurants. Right. Um, where did you learn how to become an amazing chef? Was it just because of this family that, that you grew up in? The uh, chef I apprenticed under was John Snowden. And uh, John was very well known in Chicago because he kept opening these, what essentially are pop-ups today, but uh, illegal restaurants. He would never get licensing and put them in some weird locations. Uh, I've got some friends who grew up in Old Town where one of his restaurants was, and uh, he was was remembered for two things. The restaurant was an all-soup restaurant, which uh, Jacques Pepin did many, many years later. And uh, he had these two beautiful Afghan hounds that he'd walk up and down. So they remembered seeing this exquisite-looking hounds with this very regal-looking. He was he was uh, African-American with a big white beard. Uh, actually, he was half Mexican. And uh, when I found him, he had moved to the suburbs and was he had a, a French cooking school. And it was called Du Père L'École de la Cuisine. And named after Dumont, the old, the elder, who also wrote an encyclopedia about food besides uh, Three Musketeers. Wow. Uh, anyway, that was his, that was his his idol. So I worked for him uh, pretty much night and day for for a year. I'd have to get in at five six a.m. to make the quiche or the croissant or whatever, and get the kitchen ready for the lessons. Then after the lessons, I had to wash up and get the kitchen clean again, uh, walk his dogs, feed them their very special diet that I had to cook for them. <laughs> and then we'd be on to it again by the afternoon and evening. So my day would start around five or six. So you're doing two or three pop-ups a day? No, this, this is just for the cooking school. Oh, the cooking school. <clears throat> the, uh, by the time I, I was done for the day, it was like 10, 11 o'clock. So I worked from five to 11. And then I'd go home, sometimes grab a beer on the way home, sometimes not. And at 4.30 in the morning, the phone would ring. And that would be John 
making sure I was awake. And uh, I'd like drag myself in and do it all over again. So after a year of that, uh, we decided I I was done. I really needed to kind of move on. I didn't really learn a whole lot about the restaurant business, but learned just a, a lot about cooking and about French food. Uh, classic French food. Uh, and then from there, uh, you know, the, the Lettuce Entertainment started. After Lettuce, uh, I was exec- the first executive chef for the Pump Room, which was his first foray into upscale dining and totally made a mess of that one too. Came up with some good items for the menu. We had a, a woman who was our consultant for the menu, uh, Alma Locke, who kind of helped me along so the way. You, we fast forward. We went from when you first really chopped, or I would say sharpened the saw on your yeah. your, your, your cooking skills. Right. Uh, then you were your, your first executive chef, and now you're back at you're 25 again. Th- that's where we are in the timeline? Uh, well, by the time I got to the pump, it was like 26. Yeah, gotcha, it was gotcha. just a year later. Got it. But again, no, I made a, a crap show out of it because, again, I couldn't get the food out. My payroll was too high. Late, my food cost was too high. And uh, uh, Rich made the, a great offer to me that I really should have taken. He had hired uh, Gabino Solatino, who was the chef at Le Paraquet in Chicago. Great French restaurant. What was the offer? I'm curious. I'm, I'm, I'm dying. Well, he said, if you stay, <laughs> stay with me uh, and work with Gabby, uh, I'll, you, know, you can be his sous chef. And uh, you know, we'll teach you a lot, and you'll get better. The stuff that you're struggling with, absolutely, yeah. Because you know, Gabby came in, and the restaurant started so running like have, a breeze. You, you didn't have a problem cooking, no. You, you had a problem with the systems and the processes business side. behind it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the consistency, the yeah. profitability, right? The the P and Ls, things right. like that. And uh, consequently, uh, Richard's promise to Gabby was if he came in to straighten out the pump room, he'd open a restaurant for him. Ah. Uh. So Gabby took it. Uh, anyway, as a dumbass 26-year-old with an ego too large for himself, re- declined. I said, no thanks, I want to go off on my own. That was a stupid, stupid measure. But I did and started doing cons- some consulting. In case we didn't spell it up, spell it out enough, why was that such a dumb idea? What would you have gotten from that experience? I would have gotten all the business training and made better decisions down the road. Yeah. Uh, which kind of crept themselves into some of the consulting I did and then into my own restaurants as well. Uh, I was getting better at it, but it still wasn't as fine-tuned as I needed to get, as fine-tuned as uh, Rich Melman does for his restaurants. Yeah, and you're making me think of this interview I recently just did with Gavin Kaysen. Oh, sure. sure. And when I was interviewing him, I was expecting to have like this – this long story of like leading into opening his restaurant where he climbed the ladder and eventually got a job working at Daniel Balud's restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and then he went and opened <clears throat> his own place. Mm-hmm. He worked in two restaurants from the time he graduated culinary school mm-hmm. to the time he opened his own restaurant. One was a place in San Diego. Um, I can't remember what it was called. And yeah, I the, the second restaurant where he spent eight years yeah. with uh, Daniel Balud's restaurant. Right. Uh, and then he went to open his own place. Right. But, in the first restaurant he worked at, that was a it was a ho, it was a restaurant in a hotel. Okay. So you know that he wasn't doing P and Ls and all that other shit. Sure. He wasn't. He was just doing the creativity food right. part of things. Right. So he really only worked in one restaurant, <laughs> one true restaurant, before going on to open what he's done and right. created with Swanier. Well, but, but it but, goes to show the importance of 
of going to work for people that, that are going to teach you the Danielle, I'm sure probably taught him some, but Danielle's restaurants are divided. He's got his culinary team and he's got his business team. Gavin, more than likely, and I, I haven't talked to Gavin about this, but worked mostly with the culinary team and maybe dabbled a little bit with the business team. And well, that, that's why most big chefs do their restaurant models. You know? Yeah. But I think if you want to open a restaurant, unless you have the people behind you mm-hmm. that the the counter you, right, the the compliment you, mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to be successful. You, there's more than creativity that's involved. Like like you've yeah. proven in Absolutely. your story. Yeah. Uh, but he was very intentional about asking the finance people. He's like, how do I how well, do I move the numbers? How do I good. manipulate this? So he knew oh, good. that he had. It. So he ha- he was surrounded by the world's best. Yeah. You know, yeah. like financial people. And, oh and, sure. Like, when it comes to fine dining and profitability, right, right, right. which is a hard nut to crack. Very so hard. anyway, I digress. Okay, but, um, see, I didn't know that part of it. So. Yeah, so it's interesting. It just goes to show, like, to to use your your come up as a as, it's an edu- it's an education. Mm-hmm. That's really what you're focusing on. Mm-hmm. But continue your story. Right, so you were talking about how you turned down this opportunity. Oh yeah, uh, the, there were multiple opportunities for you to go a BSU or a CDC or something like yeah, that, yeah, but yeah. you want to do your own thing. Right. Well, the consulting went actually kind of well for many years. And then I was brought up here to do a concept uh, called Winfield Potters by a couple of brothers who had this great location. That's one of theirs, Rupert's. Okay. I was just admiring my mug. <laughs> Rupert's American Cafe. Uh, and anyway, the uh, that was like early 80s. And it was at a fern rust, a fern bar, more or less. It was done on the model of TGI Fridays, Bennigan's, that were just getting started at that point. And I created a great menu for them. Uh, they had this massive salad bar, which was a thing back then. That uh, I you know, I put things like herring and chopped liver and caviar and all kinds of things out there that nobody had ever seen on a salad bar before. And then help them create desserts and, and some drinks as well. But the the act of doing all that convinced them that they needed to hire me full time and come in and run their kitchen. Well, by then I'd learned a lot more. So I was able to run a decent kitchen. What were the, the key elements that you learned that, that you think you're missing before? Like, what were you doing differently now? Uh, creating dishes that weren't too complex, Okay, first of all. Uh, dishes that I could prepare to a point where finishing would be 15 minutes or less and then creating a team at you know a, a regiment so to speak of people in the kitchen that had specific jobs and knew how to do them well and was able to cut down on the the amount of employees i needed as well even though like i was making pasta and i was doing some baking so so you started cooking for volume yeah realizing that it might be the best dish possible but if i can't recreate it consistently right. or do it fast with you know three turns a night then right. i nobody's gonna come back right um yeah so simplicity mm-hmm. keeping it simple stupid but I, th- I think there's another layer there that you mentioned about um cooking things to the point where you can finish it in 15 minutes yeah, right so right. You're, you're doing most of your cooking during the day well not when you open for lunch you know, you're doing it right. all day long uh, let me take an example here for you. The uh, mm, 
Well, the uh, scallops. We had a scallop dish at uh, Winfield Potter's, which was pretty easy to do. It's just sautéed scallops in a mustard cream sauce with uh, black olives as a garnish. Well, uh, originally I was doing the cream sauce with mustard in every pan uh, with the scallops after sautéing the scallops, taking them out, finish the sauce. Until I realized all I had to do was just saute the scallops and pour sauce over the top. <laughs> yeah. There it goes. And it lost a little bit of that, that seafood flavor to it, but not enough to really ruin the dish at all. Got it. So these little like just tricks of the trade that compound over mm-hmm. time that you can only pick up through experience. Right. right. So take your, your train of thought from there. So you started getting to the point where you, you were better, you had new skills. Yeah. Um, you were better at cooking for volume. Mm-hmm. So we had done Winslow Powders. I moved up here, went back to Chicago uh, in the late 80s uh, to do some consulting because I had people calling me. And uh, at that point, uh, the guys up here weren't really interested in doing anything new for a while. So we agreed that if they wanted me, they'd call me back, which they did again in about 1990. And when we opened that joint, uh, Rupert's American Cafe. They had a, a property in in a suburb that was their own uh, pizza joint called My Pie, which is a franchise out of Chicago. And uh, the other half of the building was a buffet restaurant called The Jolly Troll, a uh, Swedish buffet, and had been there for like 15, 20 years, but they were, they were leaving. So they took over that space uh, to create a nightclub, I had already introduced them to Rich Melman and Spiro Zakis, the, the designer for lots of things that Rich did. So they made a deal with Rich to uh, help them open this joint. Uh, and he, Rich had just opened a Rupert's in Arlington Heights in Chicago. And it uh, was going very well. Now, Rupert's concept was like a 10 or 12-piece live orchestra they had played contemporary music and uh, three to four singers that would you know, do all the singing as well. And then a dance floor and drinks and you know, drunks and all that kind of stuff that goes with a nightclub. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> it was. Well, the, we offer, opened the same concept here. The, uh, Rupert's held about mm, 400 people. I think it was huge. This is the first restaurant that you own. No, no, this is still with, with the Webb Brothers, oh, okay. yeah, gotcha, gotcha. yeah, where I was an executive chef. But when they called me back in 1990, I then became the general manager of the restaurant part of that deal and the executive chef as well. Knowing what you know now, do you think you would have tried to structure those partnerships differently? Yeah, probably. What would you yeah. have done differently? Ask for more money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or what's the percentage? Like, yeah. We can't talk in dollar bills because it it's not really transferable 30, 40 years later. But yeah. like percentage, what do you mean? Well, as for a piece of the joint, you know, so that I know I'd owed 10% or whatever, sweat equity, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And that might have helped. But even but when those businesses crashed, I got nothing. So Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that ha- happened to me over my lifetime is I finally realized I didn't care about money. I was... I was way into the food and the development of a restaurant, conceiving it, building it. That paying, was more paying yeah. homage to what your vision of a restaurant should be, or the, or helping somebody else do theirs. Yeah, uh, and uh, that was way more important than the amount of money. Sure, I needed money to survive and 
had a couple of uh, six-figure years, but mostly I've been struggling money-wise my entire life because it, it really didn't, I didn't matter. Yeah. yeah. But I think there's also something to be said about the fact that money is like crack. Mm-hmm. You can never get enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that needs to be, I mean, in my experience, like when I resigned from aviation, I started listening to all these podcasts mm-hmm. about, there's almost, there's so much emphasis on like becoming rich, becoming rich, becoming rich. Right. And I think that it's like an American, it's American culture. We, we, we value money status so much. Uh, but what we know to be true is that like you will never have enough and it's almost a sickness yeah. and like to really, to achieve like peak happiness, they say the average American needs to make about 70 to $80,000 Yeah, because at that level, as long as you live a modest lifestyle, you can, your, your, your threats are eliminated. Right. You know, you have right. health care, you have a safe place to delay your head, mm-hmm. you have, you literally have everything you need to be happy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, an important message, you know? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, even though there are people at that earning level that overspend, you know, they'll, they'll put themselves way into big debt because, you know, they want a uh, you know, $70,000, $80,000 car instead of the thirty-five or forty which they yeah. can afford. And that $80,000 car is going to be just like any other car after a week of owning. <laughs> that's right. And you're going to forget what you're in. It's, it's right. special for a day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. There was shopping is special too, right? But it's a part of the culture. I think it's, it's consumerism. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's part of this culture that we've established. Which, mm-hmm. you know, like the restaurant, the mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. I think that the the industry is going to transform the world. It's going to help people reconnect with what matters. You really, really want to get into that? Yeah. Right now, okay. You don't think so? No, 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 no. Uh, what kind of? Uh, but transforming the industry is the hard part. Yes. Uh, before we get into transforming the world. Restaurants really need to be a business uh, and looked on as a business, not only by the ownership, but by the consumer. Yes. Which will then help them realize the fact that that cheeseburger, even though they were they were paying $17 for it before, and now it's 20 that there's a reason for it. And right now, nobody sees that reason. They see it as uh, greed. Or uh, inflation. Uh, or, or whatever. whatever yeah. uh, it, but it's really operating a good restaurant. Like I told you before, I did these this uh, spreadsheet to show what it would be like with a normal business operation right now, which gave it maybe a four percent profit, which is what most restaurants are working at these days. But then, by a twenty three percent increase uh, in prices, which would cover uh, tipping and more money for labor uh, to allow a lot of pay equity go on, which doesn't go on now. They had a profit of about 11, 12%. Now, because there was more money to play with, they could do a lot more too. And you could attract onto yourself the people you need to do what you are doing well. Yeah. Which is a big it, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's the scary part for owners is taking that leap of faith that allows them to raise the price, set a, a pay scale that is good for everybody in the restaurant, which, by the way, I think you'll they'll start seeing more really committed people coming into their restaurant to work than happens right now. Because even uh, cooks, servers, whatever, is a side job. Right. You know, they're here to make money to while they're on the way to do something else. Uh, but in Europe, uh, a guy takes a job as a waiter, he's going to be a waiter the rest of his life. And he'll be getting paid well to do that. Right. Uh, without tipping. 
And I think it's important to point out that it's not easy to be a good waiter. Not it's everybody. Not, at all. <laughs> not yeah. a lot of people. It's it's such a looked down upon career. Yeah, it is. Yeah. When it's so ironic because it's so difficult. You look at somebody who who's like a data entry specialist, right? right? right. Or they just literally have to, you know, enter in numbers. And that's more respected than somebody who has social, emotional, memory, you know, like uh, just being able to read a room, being able to like Mm -hmm. remember all the ingredients, Mm -hmm. like a a constantly changing menu. Yeah. Yeah. I can't do it. I'll be honest. I I can't do it. I'm not a good server. I could be a server in certain places, Uh but I know that I'm not a server at a four star restaurant. No, it's it's multitasking at its highest uh, because they got to do everything all at once. It wasn't too long ago that cooks and chefs were looked as you know, low, the lowest end of the, the, uh, the lowest end of the the pile of, right. of people. Dishwasher. Yeah, well, they were dishwashers didn't exist now in anybody's mind. There was just this guy in the kitchen. The uh, what changed was Food Channel and modern uh, magazines like Bon Appetit, Savour. Who started looking at at the people in the kitchen as idols, you know, as people who are doing these amazing things with food? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yes, thing. <laughs> and a bad thing. Yeah, it's good and bad. Why is it a good thing? Well, because it it, it brings into focus what food should be. Uh, it doesn't have to be a a burger that's uh, eight ten inches high with a lot of slop on it. It can be just a, a regular burger, like a four inch burger. With very good ingredients, yeah, and that's something I think people are just starting to learn right now. And it's it's a bad thing because it puts focus on the 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 idolatry, let's call it, of of the business. I like to call it the the consumer side of the business. Yeah, the, the part of the industry that the industry wants you to see. Right, the facade that we're creating to create an experience for you. Yeah. But it's not the reality no. of what's happening, no. and I think that's one of the big reasons why we're in this trouble, is because we've created this. We, we, we talked about it. I think when it was off air, mm-hmm. where like, um, we've conditioned the consumer to think that a burger costs five dollars, right, 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 right. Um, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is we've, we've, th- this media has is is telling this narrative of mm-hmm. like what it, how romantic the restaurant industry is. Mm-hmm. And people get drawn to that romance mm-hmm. who want to make a career out of this. And then they get involved in it and they realize that, that that's not it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going through your mind? Well, there's the the popularity of certain chefs, too, that draw people to them. Like Daniel Boulud and uh, Thomas Keller, Gavin Kaysen, even. And what happens is without the, without the, the oversight of the business... And you're only looking at these small, actually very small places to learn how to how to be a chef or how to learn how to cook. Uh, you have to do a great commit, commitment only because to get into those places, you need to stage or work for free. Some are very short, couple of week positions. Some are years long. With, at Thomas Keller's, some of his interns have working with him for about a year unpaid which allows Thomas to actually make money in right. the restaurant and have the size crew that he I've, needs. I have so many conversations. Did I, did I bring to this conversation the recording about how I didn't think fine dining was profitable? Uh, well, a little bit. Yeah, we yeah did I talk mentioned about, that a little bit. Yeah. But th- th- this is how they're profitable. By, exactly. 
by not paying people. Yeah. <laughs> but well, they are paying people. And I think that's the argument. They're paying people <coughs> um with knowledge and experience. Oh yeah. Oh sure. And let's be honest, if you can hit your name to Thomas Keller, that's gonna open doors for you. Not anymore. Not anymore. No. But for a long time it did. For a lot of, yeah, for a long time it did. Yeah. Uh when uh uh the guy in in Denmark, I forgot his name now, closes his restaurant, no me. Uh that's what should happen to all restaurants. Uh, all restaurants are close. No, no, no. All, all, I don't like. I said, I, I, which you, I don't know if you remember. I don't think those are restaurants. Those are artist galleries, right. and, and these people are working at a very high level of creativity with uh, food that is, you know, it's local, sustainable. It's beautiful, and these very odd dishes, and it's. It's more an experience of food rather than a restaurant that's really meant to be a joining place of uh, eating good food, conviviality, and a good atmosphere. Uh, Let's be honest. People want to show the world how cool they are at this restaurant. It's a status symbol. Well, it is a status symbol, too. but Psychographics all the way. (laughs) But again, that that was done by the PR people or the magazines that, that... no, drank the Kool-Aid and are doing it. I, I watched a movie last night called The Menu. I don't know if you've seen it, but... I haven't, um, but I, I mean, I avoid movies sometimes because <laughs> they can create such a false... But I think Hollywood's starting to catch up with the, the true storyline. And that's what this is. Uh, this is the true storyline of what those high-level high restaurants are mixed with this very freaky kind of horror thing going on. I have to watch it. Yeah, it's it's a very good movie. There was a movie on Netflix. I don't I can't remember what it was called, but it it was like a street cook, like a she was a, it takes place in Thailand. She was a street cook <clears throat> um wor- working the walk and somebody noticed her like her talent mm-hmm. and they could try to recruit her for like a fancy restaurant mm-hmm. and she goes for it and then she just realizes like the bullshit it's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. And what matters is cooking for people that you love and with the people and with people you love. Mm-hmm. So she ends up going back to her street cooking job. One of the most honest things really about the business is the bear. I don't know if you, you watched that yes, series. I did see that series. It's exactly what it's like. You know, you got a guy coming from a, a white tablecloth restaurant to his uncle's beef stand, which actually was my favorite place to eat. Was Chicago. it his uncle or his brother? Not that it matters. Uh, I think it might have been his brother. Oh, his brother. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <clears throat> but uh, they filmed it at this place called Mr. Beef, which was my favorite joint to eat in Chicago. Would there be there a couple of times a month? Anyway, uh, he comes from that white tablecloth experience into basically a street food experience and tries to blend them together. And uh, you see the frustration of him trying to do that, and there's a lot of family drama going on as well. But it really shows accurately what white tablecloth work is in a, in a kitchen and what work in a, hot, a beef stand is. And they're equally difficult, equally challenging, and equally, equally hard. But one is done for one reason, which is artistry, and the other is done just to fill your your face with the best-tasting beef sandwich you ever had. I, I resonate with the latter. <laughs> Personally, I never got into fine dining. I don't even like going to fancy restaurants. Well, yeah, I, you know, I do just to kind of try it out and see what's yeah. going on. But I've even stopped doing that really since the mid '80s when fancy restaurants turned into these artistic galleries. That's something I just couldn't do anything about. I just 
it was you'd walk out hungry first of all <laughs> and uh the uh the experience was good but it was also pedantic let's call it what is uh, the definition of pedantic i have no fucking clue <laughs> i'll look it up because it I was the, the the chef was more interested in himself and the image that he was per, uh performing for for the guests than actually ex- experience of a restaurant here's the definition I'm okay not, of or like a pedant <laughs> so now i gotta look up pedant all right uh, a person who is excessively concerned with minor details and rules there you go. or with displaying academic learning. So it's about uh, so, ego. Yeah, so I picked that right. Yeah. Okay. Um, All my book learning. Yeah, I, I tend to feel the same way. But at the same time, there are – this is one of the biggest lessons I've learned in nearly a thousand episodes. There is no right way. Right. There, And when I started this podcast – my goal was to crack the fucking code, dude. I was like, well, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure out the trick, the secret to becoming successful in the restaurant industry. And the more I learned, and I know I'm not alone here, the more I realized I didn't know anything. Well, there is that. Yeah, there, that's true. But now you're talking about some very minute details at that point. There are really only three rules to have a successful restaurant. And they're more than just location, location, location. There, yes, location is very important. Ambiance is very important so that when the guest comes in, they have a pleasant experience of lighting and music. And and it it, it could be the simple uh, uh, breakfast di- uh, breakfast uh, furniture in a Chinese restaurant on Mott Street to you know polished woods and fine uh, materials. And the last is good food. Uh, well, actually, good food, good service is, is the third. But... Uh, if you can conquer those three, everything else will come along. The business side will come along if you've got some smarts of your own or you bring the right people in to yeah. help you do that. There's definitely some patterns that are solid, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But like the point to, to the point that I'm trying to make out, like it all depends on the the person who's what are your goals? What is your vision? What are you trying to are you trying to be the pedant restaurant mm-hmm. you know that or the artsy approach if mm-hmm. the art of it the visual appeals what you're going for mm-hmm. or are you trying to be the restaurant that offers the most value or are you trying to be the restaurant that makes people feel the most welcome mm-hmm. or are you trying to be the restaurant that puts on the best show mm-hmm. with like entertainment mm-hmm. there's a million different so there is no right way you know what i'm saying that's one of the things <coughs> or are well, you now we're talking about restaurant segments pop-ups versus quick like fast casual or quick service or fine dining or casual like or digital you know like what like how am i supposed to tell somebody what to do you know what i mean well like i said it it really kind of it all has the the commonality of good food yeah uh if you do good food you'll do well right if you don't really care about your food that much and it's just okay then uh, you're not going to do well i mean i could also argue that like if you're good at promoting yourself, you'll do well. Yeah, well, again, as long as the food is okay and and the, the yes, consumer there, is, there is that getting enough value, <laughs> so like it could be good enough, yeah. and you're offering great value, but you're really good at telling the world how great you are. Yeah, and there's a guy in town. I'm not going to mention his name. Who's doing exactly that? He's got three or four restaurants right now, maybe five, that are just okay. They're not great, but he is looked upon as. Uh, restaurant savant and you no know, he's got all the right answers i'm totally asking you for the name after this recording. after the recording i'll do it <laughs> uh there is 
you know, that happens everywhere around the world, uh, uh, more so in America probably. But once we get to that point, then the whole idea of a restaurant is lost. There is no reason to go to a restaurant that the food is just okay and the owner is doing it to create an image for himself right? Uh, or his company or whatever. Once that is taken out of the equation and we get back to just restaurants are the place where you go for good food, you go for a great conversation with your friends, <coughs> you go for entertainment if that's what the restaurant's offering. And, you know, it's in a good location, whether that means midtown or out in the suburbs somewhere. It, you know, that, those are all good locations. But uh, the, all of that has to be in the commonality of what a restaurant is. And like I said, I think we've kind of we gotten away from it. Uh, the PR people, uh, magazine editors, and uh, social media, social media influencers. And people, I, I pe- hate being labeled as an influencer, but that's what the people's world calls me people's right. egos right. have, have you know, drawn away from that. These restaurants that really I, I can't call them restaurants anymore because they're not. You know, they yeah, their food may be good, but it's artistically performed that nobody else at that level can perform. They're the only ones, which is great. Yeah. Uh, now, Ferran Adria, who had uh, uh, Bouli in, in, I think it was, was it Barcelona or some, some small town in Spain, operated for many years on that level, and people were drawn to him. Uh, he was one of the first uh, chemistry cooks, you know, who created all the bubbles. Gastroeconomy yeah. or whatever it's called. Yeah. It was gas- is it not gastro? What's the... Molecular, yeah, yeah, yeah. Willie Dufresne does, does widely Dufresne does that here, and so does Gavin. Uh, not so much, but there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing that I can say is the stamp, like you said, that this is a good restaurant. It has to have all of those pieces. Whether you're serving uh, a, a roasted duck uh, or you're serving uh you know a single scallop on uh on a heated rock from maine or something <laughs> i just realized we never took a break to thank our sponsors so i gotta make sure <laughs> that happens so we're gonna do that right okay. now Alrighty. we'll come back and we'll continue this conversation okay. this podcast is brought to you by me the culinary operating system for food professionals as a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 plus years Mies founder and CEO Josh Sharkey was frustrated that only the financial and inventory software was available in the kitchen. And while those are important, they don't actually address the process of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. Whether you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies was built just for you. Organize, share, prep, and scale your recipes like never before. Plus, get laser-accurate food costs and nutritional analysis faster than you could ever imagine. Chefs that use Mies have seen, on average, 70% reduction in training time for new staff, 20 to 30% less food waste and overproduction, and an average of 30 to 50,000 reduction in annual cost of goods sold from their easy-to-use recipe engineering. 
part of the magic in Mies is a built-in database of thousands of ingredients that have been tested by Mies chefs and registered dietitians to ensure all the yield loss when you prep an ingredient as well as the unit conversions from volume to weight to pieces are built in, not to mention automated allergen tagging to ensure you have a consolidated view of allergens and nutrition. Get started by visiting getmes.com slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable. And as a listener of Restaurant Unstoppable podcast, you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today. Revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with Mies. I realize we also got away from your story, too. Is that not important for you to share? I don't want to. Oh, my. Yeah, we totally derailed them. I think that we haven't gone to the point where you're, you've opened a restaurant. Yet. Well, no. The, <laughs> yeah. Actually, there is a uh, story that was done on me by a, a local journalist that uh, I'll give you the PDF for uh, that takes my 50 year career into you know, 2000 words or whatever. Okay. Uh, I mean, I do want to share your story. Sure. You know, um, Give us like the the highlighted version, and then we'll get back to kind okay. of uh, the the state of the industry today. How there is no standard that I've like the, the kind of the, the continue this thought that we we're right. on. But bring us back to when you like kind of paint that picture and just do it like in a speedboat. Okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, when I came back here in the '90s to open Rupert's Cafe, the nightclub and the restaurant, we also opened a. Uh, world-class Italian restaurant called Coco Lizzone. Got them all up and running, and uh, some of the real estate things changed, and you know they had kind of changed the whole restaurant. So I pulled out and started doing consulting again. But also in the back of my mind, looking for somebody to help me open a restaurant, a little angel investor. You know, you have, at this point, you know Mitch Melman, or Rich Melman, right? Yeah, yeah. You were yeah. interested in working with him? You know, I never really thought about it, yeah. because... That was my past. Ah. Yeah. So you, you have this this dream, this vision that's forming in you that you want to open your own place. Yeah. And I find an angel investor to help me do it. Uh, I had a great location that I had in mind. A small little basement restaurant, actually, that uh, Buca De Pepo started in. They got it before I did. But then uh, I found one uh, right next to the Target Center, in our big basketball stadium. And this investor loved that. He thought we'd just kill it. Uh, so we opened that. And that only lasted about three years because the city took the property as uh, was it the, the domain thing, whatever that is, which we knew was coming. Eminent well, domain. Eminent domain, which we knew was coming, but we thought we'd be part of it. But he sold it before, like, months before it we were almost there uh and you know, and i had uh some sweat equity you know, percentage but nothing had been uh vetted yet i wasn't there where i could actually claim that i was a part owner but the restaurant was named after me and it was it was a old class supper club uh with flocked wallpaper uh and then from there went back to consulting did that for a couple more years. And then in 20, 2015, uh, I got the vision to do a hot dog tavern, a hot dog restaurant. Hot dogs that were just starting to kind of yeah. come into the mainstream. But coming from Chicago, hot dogs had been part of my life forever. Right. Is Nate's hot dogs up this way? 
Does Nate? that sound familiar? Nate's Hot Dogs? No. Yeah. He's a past guest. I knew he was in the Midwest North. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. No. Por- uh, the Portillo's guys are up okay. here right now, which... Anyway. Uh, so we took uh, my partner, who's a great chef, wanted to do some sausage as well. So we were uh, we were manufacturing our own sausages, doing some very unique hot dogs, like one with truffle gravy and all sorts of things. And it went kind of well, but we were in a location that really didn't have great parking. You had to go park in a lot, which was half a block behind the restaurant. So that was okay in the summertime, but no, nobody wanted to take that trip in the winter. So the winter we died. Then there was road construction, which is really what killed my restaurant downtown. And then the uh, we got on Triple D, which I thought was very exciting, and, and that would you know, change our fortunes completely. Did nothing. Really? <laughs> yeah. We were busy for a couple of weeks, and then it went right back to what our business level was before. Was this- this is 2015, 16? This is 16 by 16. now. Yeah. I think Triple D had its heyday. Yeah. And it was in like the earlier, like before cell phones really came uh-huh. in. Like when TV was still the way you found out about things. Sure. With Triple D was going. If you mm-hmm. were on Triple D in the early days, it would. Guaranteed. Yeah. You would get skyrocketed. Right. Because people right. would fly to you to like in like. But I think once the internet kind of picked back up, mm-hmm. and once Triple D was into a few seasons, it it definitely imp- it will impact your business, but not like it used to. Well, you know, it's funny they, they still replay that episode, and every time they replay it, I'll get a phone call from somebody, yeah, or they'll put a comment up. I kept the uh, Facebook page open just for that kind of stuff. So I, that's interesting. Is this hot dog concept still going? Nope. When did it close? Two thousand seventeen. Okay. Uh Landlord wouldn't readjust my rent because uh, it was a little high, and I was a little too confident when we when I signed the lease. And all I wanted to do was uh, reduce it to a percentage rent for a while, and then we'd get back to something else. And he was too 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 set on his ways. So uh, we we made it through the Cubs victory, uh, which was very good. It was a good couple of weeks for me. Uh, in fact, on the final night of the series, I had people standing out on the sidewalk watching the game through their front windows, uh, drinking and eating out there with no permit, but they were doing it. So that was, that was a fun night. But uh, finally, we had to close. And after that, I went back to consulting again. And we're basically here today. Now, right about 2018 is when I discovered podcasting. And I started doing it. I saw somewhere that you started in 2014, so that's not accurate because I, I know you've been around for a while. Yeah, not podcast. Podcasting started in 2018, 2019, something like that. Yeah. And um, what was your objective with the podcast? Uh, to get more business, yeah. <laughs> get some consulting business. But also, you know, I this thing about telling stories that always been a part of me, part of my time as a student following, uh, getting into theater or film. I love the storytelling, and I knew there were some great stories in the restaurant business. So the the first podcast I had, I called Legends and Lies of Launching a Restaurant. I noticed you dropped the lies. I, well, I dropped everything, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, because launching the, the Legend and Lies of Watching a Restaurant, I thought it was too specific. You know, there might be 10 guys who really want to hear that story. So then it became... Uh, led, uh, 
Well, then they, I think we went right into restaurant legends after that. Uh, because it, uh, I talked to a podcasting consultant and said, if you put restaurant in the name, you know, you'll get more hits. So I did. And, uh, you know, I just love, I was doing, well, four or five interviews a month and, uh, and uh, posting almost every week. But, uh, you know, my money was starting to run out from consulting and I needed to find real work. So I was doing some more consulting a little bit, but kept coming back to the podcast, hoping I could get enough listenership. No, and back then my listenership was like 80, yeah, 20 guys. I, I probably knew anyway. Uh, and then, then the bug really hit me. I, I thought this is going to be a career and I want to make it a career. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I love what I, I have to pinch myself sometimes. I'll be, it's, it's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think people think podcasting is a lot easier than it really yeah. is. Um, not everyone's good at it. Right. You know, right. and I think I have a lot to learn, yeah. but uh, I, I'm a lot better than I was when I started yeah. a thousand episodes ago. Yeah. You got to learn. Uh, my uh, brother and sister-in-law are both journalists and I know I had them start listening to it. And, uh, she said, now you're just a great interviewer because you let people tell this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've learned. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you're also super knowledgeable about the industry too. Yeah. You have a whole career in the industry. Right. Um, so hopefully after today's episode, uh, you know, there's a, a new wave of podcast yeah, listeners. That's what I'm doing through, this. Right? Uh, so go do, go, where's the best place to find the podcast? Not that we're at the point of, but I want to make sure people know in case they don't stick around to the end. Where do you find well, it? Well, it's on every stream. So that's easy to find. You just look, search for Restaurant Legends. The website for it is restaurantlegends.com. And, uh, yeah, what else do you need besides those two? Yeah, that's ex- exactly all you need. Right. Uh, I do want to co- come back to what we were talking about earlier. I want to make sure we got your story out. And we came to where we are today. And uh-huh. um, one thing we started talking about is how the the industry is just so diverse now. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you were hoping we would discuss in today's conversation is just what the, how the world of um, like casual dining in fern bars have just <laughs> changed so much in the past yeah. 50 years. Right. I kind of think it's a good thing that the restaurant industry is diversified. Oh, sure. There used to be like you were a restaurant, like the way you defined it, and then it evolved into quick service and fast casual over right. time. Right. Uh, and now it's just like there's so many, it comes in so, like so many different business models, mm-hmm. whether it's like pre like pre-made meals or I think that you can do so much more with, private chefing mm-hmm. because of technology mm-hmm. like and, th- and there's more cultural activity in it than there have ever has been before what do you mean by that well you can find restaurants uh that are thai that are vietnamese that are korean a lot of a lot of different asians I'm about to go interview a mong restaurant tour and mong restaurant well yeah. Vang is, is an interesting guy uh and he even though he <laughs> really hasn't had that much business in the, in the restaurant He's a very good cook. I mean, I, th- I think 2019 is when he opened his first place. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't think that's still open. He's got a pop up. Is a high high? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the street food. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, he's got another one with noodles. But anyway, there's uh, those kind of things. A lot of different Mexican and South American. There's Argentine restaurants, you know, uh, Venezuelan. The American palates definitely. Yeah, and no, there's more like, southern food. You no, know, there's 
some New England influences. I think Portland, Oregon was a great influence to the rest of the country because it showed people how to do local food and do it well and do it simply and do it affordably. Now, so there are so many tiny little elements now of what a restaurant can be, and that's the way it should be. Right. Yeah, you know, it doesn't have to be that same model like it was back in the oh, mid-'70s, up until the mid-'70s. The model's broken. The, the, well, the, the oper- operating model is broken. Yeah, the operating model is broken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you? What's the the part of that model that's not broken? <laughs> it's not. Well, you, when I say the model, I'm talking <laughs> about the the model of you know, if you're opening a restaurant, if you're going to any public any uh, any publication on how to open a restaurant, mm-hmm. and give you the step by step. If you're doing ten percent, you're doing great. Right. Um. Where you know whatever's left over is yours. You right. Know? Right. Uh, or just I don't know, like prime costs, like. The, the the formula I think is broken generally. Yeah, the the well, not the well, no, is how that formula is approached, uh, what the revenue source is. That's what's kind of broken right yeah, now. Yeah, okay, that's a better way to put at it. The uh, there's a lot of ownership out there who don't trust PLs. They won't even look at one. You know, if if they have money in the bank, they're doing good. When they're run out of money, something's wrong. Right. And that's a very simple way to look at the restaurant. But for hundreds of years, that's why only the, anybody ever looked at, at the business of a restaurant was what was in the bank. Now people are getting more analytic about you know, what to do with the money, where it has to go, and uh, where, where it has to come from. So one thing that I know is near and dear to your heart just from talking to you is this idea of sustainability and doing things locally mm-hmm. and how do you make that profitable? What is the formula to doing value injected businesses with, you know, sourcing locally and, and taking care of your people? Have you, have you cracked that code? Like yeah, those it's real the, simple. What is it? Just charge what you need to. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you if your chicken is $10 a pound, but the broadline distributor is $6 a pound and you want the $10 a pound chicken, you're going to charge uh, $20, $25 for that chicken dish. But if you're using Broadline, you can charge 15 And it's, that's what's important to you. But I think what's more important to what's important to you is it's becoming important to the consumer. Exactly. Um, and I think it's our job as restaurants. If we want to transform the industry, if you want to inject value into the industry, ethics into the industry, mm-hmm. I think we need to communicate to the consumer listen like trust me you want this grass-fed non-gmo mm-hmm. uh sus- like i don't know sustained su- sustainably farmed cow not as important how it tastes though if that cow tastes good and is also all those things that's that's a plus but people don't i think people eat emotions they eat you know what i'm saying like oh how's, how's another way well, to say this not eat emotions but like kind of psychographics yeah um what does eating here what is being seen eating here say about me and me and my values yeah, okay uh we people care about that yeah. and also people are selfish people started eating spending more money on food when they realized the food that they put into their body makes them feel better sure you know sure. so now there's something in it for me right you know i don't right. want i want only organic all this stuff because i know that People are selfish. Let's be honest. Like, I, what's in it for me? Right. You know, you're charging. Right. Like, you're gonna not get cancer. That's what's in it for you. Well, you know, not necessarily that, but but you know, you're like, gonna feel good. Your odds when you're done, and you're fe- you're gonna yeah. feel good. But yeah. now they're starting to realize too. With like even, it's like oh, what is it? Um, the 
I had this thought. I lost it. Yeah, but okay. um, uh, I think regenerative farming okay. and like all this stuff, we're starting to realize that the way we treat the planet and like it's all connected. Right. So if we want to have a world where we're the where the world's healthy and the world's healthy, we're all healthy. Mm-hmm. It starts with the way it starts with our innate, our, our relationship with planet Earth. Yeah. Right. So like. I'm thinking about like uh, like mono farming right now. Oh, okay. Like you see all these people who are like, oh, like stop killing cows, stop eating cows, right. eat meat because it's better for the environment. Right. Growing billions of pounds of soybeans is not good for the environment. <laughs> like I'm sorry. Like what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Well, there's a lot of truth to that. There's uh, – like it said, for me, it's all about the end result of how the food tastes and whether it's – Soybeans from you know a sixty-acre farm, or soybeans from a five-acre farm, that's sustainable and organic or whatever. As long as it tastes good and tastes better than than the uh, big product, that's good. Oh, sorry. Well, sure. and then in in like let's take beef as an example. Grass-fed beef doesn't always taste good because of what they're eating and where they are in their lifespan uh, before they're slaughtered. But a cow that was eating grass for most of its life and then spends a couple of months eating grain develops better flavor and better fat. And environmentally, I think that's still okay if you're going to eat beef because at least you're going to eat a product that has been raised in a very conscious way by letting them eat grass all the time. And it creates a product that you, that you want to, consume you know you want you want to crave it because it tastes so good right uh but i think the more we the more we learn we're starting to realize that the the better we treat the better our relationship with food is as Mm -hmm. far as trying to recreate the natural order like trying to be the amazon you Mm -hmm. know uh, we should we should all think like mayans (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) we're like we coexist with food and like the the idea of a centralized food system there's no reason why people should be hungry no and you know what know. I'm saying? Like yeah. the things that we, the challenges we face. I mean, but we're starting to realize that the close, the the closer food is to the natural order, mm-hmm. the better it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that, and then I think that there's something to be said about what what is that doing when we're eating this type of food? That's that's like like elk is so good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, wild like foraging, like mushrooms, all these like these foods that grow in like in a natural setting mm-hmm. we're realizing are so good for you. Mm-hmm. So I think that when you make it about where I'm going with this to come full circle mm-hmm. is that if you educate the consumer about how their purchasing dollars can impact the, their future. Yeah. And here's the thing. If people start wanting that stuff, yeah. the price is going to go down because more people are going to get into the business. Exactly. So exactly. like it's, it all starts with the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. And like the literally, like for the longest time, the consumer has just been manipulated by corporate America saying, this sure. is what you need. This right. is what you want. Right. But we're starting to fucking see through that shit. <laughs> so I think it's the, the restaurant industry that needs to be the influencer and say, wake up. Yeah. Wake the frig up. <laughs> you know, like you consumer, if you start putting your money in certain directions, the market will follow. Right. And we can live in a better world. But stop bitching. And start making decisions, and start and re- have better values, have better priorities. Sorry, huh? this is your time to shout. Okay, I don't, I don't hear the bitching, but I do see the result of wanting more organic product and more sustainable product. And it's not being heard by a lot of restaurateurs, unfortunately. The ones that hear hear it, I think, are the successful ones right now. Uh, 
but the thing that that kind of turned my my life around in in how I look at food was my first trip to Italy, uh, where I ate this chicken dish that didn't taste like chicken and that I was used to. It was better because it had scrapped in a in a in a barnyard until it was sla- slaughtered. Bugs and yeah, grubs. eating bugs and maybe some other feed as well. Uh, the biggest uh, revelation was the tomato. Uh, tomatoes in Europe uh, taste totally different than the tomatoes here because they don't have to travel thousands of miles to the restaurant. They're grown in town or near town. And when they're not in season, you don't use them. In America, when a tomato's out of season, you're getting it from another part of the world yeah, that is in season. Yeah. Which is another big issue. The, yeah. the amount of carbon footprint we we have. So so you can have your bananas every morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't get me started. But you know, that's 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 a result of other things, you know, the, the depression and just uh, how our American society developed over the years. You know, <coughs> one thought I've played with is this idea like I, I think we could live in a world where the food and shelter is free. I'm not I'm not a socialist. Yeah, yeah. But hear me out. Yeah, okay. Food and shelter are the biggest expenses for most people. Yeah. You eliminate that. Think about how much food we throw away. Mm-hmm. Think about how many empty freaking buildings there are right now. Mm-hmm. If we solve that problem, we free up so much more additional revenue to mm-hmm. be spent on experiences mm-hmm. and, and stuff like this. Uh, food, food, shelter, and travel. Mm-hmm. I think if you make those three things, pretty much if you're, if you're a citizen, you eliminate so much expense and, and, and stress, and mm-hmm. you provide a lot of security for people. Yeah. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's, it's food is the most important thing, like mm-hmm. surviving. And then after that, security, feeling secure, shelter. Right, right. You know, and being able to get to your job and stuff like this. Well, you know, I'd add education to that as well. And education. Yeah, education. But I feel like not. in today's world, that that's already free. Kind of. Not really. Well, we have access to information. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. Like, we have the right. internet. All right. Like, um, but I, anyway. Yeah. Um, so if we do that, and then we, instead of moving food to people, right. we move people to food. Oh sure, okay. And then we we have a a whole economy that's hinges on hospitality mm-hmm. and just treating people travelers and it's, and, yeah, and growing great. our food locally and feeding it to them straight off the friggin' plant. Like you want this, come and get it, and then yeah. take some home. It's a little too noble, but I get it. I don't know. I feel like that's a really cool vision for the future. It right? is. It is. A, it is a cool vision, but uh, that's going to be harder to get to than. Getting the consumer to understand he's going to spend five more bucks on this dish. That yeah, we're short-minded. Yeah, really, we look five minutes from now, not five years from now. Well, you know, it's step by step. Uh, I'm going to change subject here, and that, no, that's the way the gun laws are going in this country. Yeah, we're going step by step to get to where we need to, which is banning pretty much all guns. But no, they want to fix the mental health issue. They want to fix the background issue. Yeah, yeah, you need to fix those, but there's more. And hopefully by fixing these two issues, we can start approaching the other issues as well. And that's the same thing with food. You know, we we, uh, we attack the, the problem of getting food to people, getting uh, reasonably priced food to people. 
healthy food to people. Healthy, healthy food to people. Then they'll be better off and they'll start making different decisions in how they buy, which then allow us to go on to other things that uh, that uh, American needs. I don't know. I think it's in reach because you think of the world we live in today, um, information is traveling faster than ever. Yeah. And people who didn't have the privilege didn't have act maybe they were illiterate 50 years ago because they were you know like there are more people who couldn't read 50 years ago yeah true, today. True. you know what i'm saying yeah. so literally like and there, like, there's resources like this podcast like, information is flowing free more free than ever before which is one of the good things about the internet that mm-hmm. i'm somebody who bitches a lot about social media <laughs> and the internet but information is moving so i think that there's this we live at this time right now where like we're we are like People are linear thinkers, mm-hmm. um, but cultural evolution is exponential. Mm. Uh, and I think when you have the framing, the 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 mediums through which to inspire people and make impressions on people, I think that there's going to be a. You're seeing it happen. Like, well, you talked about how much has the world changed as the t- in the time that you've been in the restaurant industry. <laughs> it's it's trained. It's changed several times. Would you say in your experience in the past 10 years, it's changed more than faster, more expedited than ever before? Not necessarily faster, but larger. Uh, there's, well, there, there are more kinds of restaurants uh, operating today than there were 10 years ago. There are more people in the business that have gotten their, their place in that structure of the business uh, that they deserve. Uh, you know, cooks becoming chefs, chefs becoming owners. But uh, it's still, like I said, it's still that core of doing what, you, what you're supposed to do, and that's provide a great experience, whether it's dining, breakfast, lunch, whatever. Uh, once you, you accomplish that, then the rest kind of falls in place. Yeah. But, would you, but as far as transformation, as far as the world changing, I right. mean, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? 72. 72. 72 you started when you were 15 years old sure let's call it that <laughs> nearly 60 years in yeah, the industry sure um was there a lot of change in the industry from say uh 60 years so we were working in the industry in the 70s yeah from the 70 to like 95 how much did the, the industry oh change? uh two or three times actually the because when i joined uh the world of restaurants full-time in the 70s there were two kinds of restaurants, oh, maybe three. There was the the small neighborhood diner. There was the at that time just the 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 tiny tiny uh, segment of uh, casual restaurants or fern bars, and then fine dining. And if I wanted to cook, those are my three opportunities. I stayed between the neighborhood restaurant and fern bars. I didn't go up to fine dining. Uh, and that really held its place until, uh, i say, early 80s in that area when casual restaurants exploded and became really our, our main focus on the restaurant business. White tablecloth restaurants were still there, but they weren't opening as, as often. And there were always neighborhood restaurants, diners and whatever. Which so, I'm glad to see. So from like the 80s to 2005? Uh, no. Um, would, would you say casual dining was the predominant oh, business model at that point? From like, Well, it still is. Uh, I mean, fine, uh, fine dining is going away and casual restaurants are taking over. Yeah. Whether they're 
uh, culturally different or American or whatever, that segment of dining fine is fine casual. Yeah, fine. Yeah, it, they're they're becoming the norm for restaurants right now. Yeah, where you're keeping the high quality food, but you're eliminating all the operational expenses right, around it. Right, you're taking the pretension out of it. Right. Um, I just feel like I haven't been around as long as you have, so I, I can't I Nobody can't <laughs> I can't speak from your perspective. But it feels like in the past five years, yeah, you went from either you know your fine dining, your casual dining, your fast casual, your quick service, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe your hotel, mm-hmm. right? Uh, can't leave that out. But in the past couple of years, man, with the pandemic forcing people to evolve and mm-hmm. step outside of the you know the 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 habits the re, just rinse and repeat rinse and repeat mm-hmm. and realizing that hey like there's this digital asset that we can leverage mm. to to use for transactions and I can I don't know I just feel like the and people are starting to see like oh I could do a membership model right. I can have a dog park where I serve food and alcohol mm-hmm. and charge people a, a flat rate right to come and just have access to all like we're just starting to think. Better. Yeah, well, you know? bigger, but bigger, yeah, not necessarily better, but uh, more experimental. True, uh, which is that's what eating has always been about: is trying to find a way to to sell somebody food somewhere, doing whatever they're doing. Uh, if you want to bring them into a room that you're calling a restaurant, great. If you want to bring it to them in a food truck, that's totally viable and very successful for some people. Uh, the private chefing, like you uh, mentioned before, is another way. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do it that are becoming acceptable now. Back in the early 90s, there were only a couple of ways to do it. And that was either a restaurant, a restaurant, or a restaurant. You know, there, that's all you did. You didn't do any pop-ups. You didn't do uh, uh, food trucks. I think when I did the hot dog joint, uh, we were the, one of the first businesses to do pop-ups. Because in 2015, 2014 and 15, I was testing the concept by uh, borrowing kitchens from some friends of mine and doing the restaurant, doing the, the what we thought would be a good menu for our restaurant. Uh, not as large because uh, we had to kind of scale things down a little bit. But we probably did about 12 to 15 pop-ups before we actually opened our doors. And now everybody's doing a pop-up. Right. I think pop-ups are the way to start. I think a restaurant doesn't today doesn't start with a restaurant. It starts with your brand. Right. Right. You can, for like $50, mm-hmm. you can start a restaurant. If you think about mm-hmm. the idea of where does a restaurant start? Sure. It doesn't start with a brick and mortar. It starts right. with the, it starts with putting it into the, the, the universe. This is what I want to do. Well, that's the concept. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But you know, like the vision, right? It starts right. with your vision. Mm-hmm. And today the cool thing is you can share that vision mm-hmm. on so many different mediums. Right. Yeah. Very and, true. and all you need is a friend with a space mm-hmm. that lets you use that space when they're closed. Mm-hmm. And then you can instantly tap into their POS and start using their infrastructure to get your food out. Mm-hmm. And then you start building your email list. You start building your following. You, mm-hmm. you know, and I know people just don't think like this. Like, or didn't they? They, they do now. Yeah, no, they do now. Talk yeah. to this girl in Charleston. I shouldn't call her a girl. Let's talk to this woman. She's twenty five years old woman in Charleston. Um, she started her muffin drop business, <laughs> where she she makes gluten free, dairy free. Basically, anybody can eat these muffins. Okay. Muffins, sure. Um, 
and she's killing it out there. And yeah. she just all she does is all she has is social Instagram. Yeah. And a and a website. She uses her Instagram account to drive people to her website where they order muffins. And mm-hmm. she just goes to markets and she and she just has her little like wh- wholesale retail muffin business. She well, and, uh, d- during the pandemic this great idea hit me and I've just never really uh brought it to life. Uh a frozen pizza that was uh delivered to a location that the customer had to come to to get pre-ordered uh and actually doesn't actually i was trying to debate whether frozen or just uh, cooked and refrigerated but uh par baked par baked yeah but do a deep dish chicago style pizza that had this mystery of you have to order ahead and then we send you the location where you go pick it up uh and you know, it wouldn't be midnight pickups, but it would be uh, convenient times for the consumer. Uh, and I worked on packaging and uh, the name. I called it That's My Pizza because you, know, you point at something when you go pick it up. That's my pizza. Uh, and I thought it was uh, still a pretty good concept. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to take it anywhere now, but uh, I wouldn't have thought that way 10 years ago. Yeah, and especially now with your podcast, you get to talk to people and open yourself up to perspective. Well, there's that's that the other too. cool thing about yeah. the podcast yeah. is it, like it gives you this door to like listen to people and their right. ideas and right. their perspective. Exactly. Um, speaking about listening to ideas and perspective, you did want to talk about tipping. I know that was a big part yeah. of what you wanted to talk about today. So I want to take mm-hmm. one more quick break to thank our sponsors. Sure, we're going to come back and we're not going to do a speed round. I I'd rather use the. 15 minutes we have left together to really kind of share okay. your opinions on because sure. uh, we are here to inspire empower and right. transform the industry right. and i think that your thoughts on tipping are, are, are part of the contribution to transformation so we'll okay. be right back recently on the show you've been hearing it come up often restaurant systems pro if you've become interested i highly recommend you sign up for the restaurant system pro 60 day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60 day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone fred langley ceo of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the restaurant systems pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. 
This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with One Huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on One Huddle versus traditional micro learning and video-based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this. You're looking at a more engaged worker too because they're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one, and huddle like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to One Huddle's game shop, which includes 3,000 plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support, please use this link. And it's, it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. We're back. Um, so a couple of things you want to talk about are the new normal and tipping. So what, what do you mean by the new normal? At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, people were saying you know, some very scary things. Somebody uh, in this town, <laughs> I'm not going to mention again, uh, said it was an uh, uh, extinction event and that restaurants will never reopen or many restaurants won't ever open. And that's true. Some never did. But then there was the only there's this promise that once we come out of this, the restaurants will be a new normal. There'll be new ways to to do things in restaurants, and everybody was kind of ganging up on that, saying, "Yeah, well, we reopened and people went right back to operating the way they always have." That whole new normal has not been realized on any large scale. There are a few restaurants here and there that are doing it. When you say the new normal, be specific. What do you mean? What is the new normal in your opinion? New normal is a different look at your operating strategy and uh, what your operating costs are going to be. One is pay equity. And that's making sure that the guys in the kitchen are getting close to what the people on the floor are making. Now, the people on the floor are making $37, $47 an hour with all their tips. Guys in the kitchen never get to that point. 20, if they're lucky. Yeah. Well, 20, 20, 25 now. But, now, yeah. Uh, at the time, they were 18. <laughs> and you know, tip sharing is something that didn't allow the cooks to take part in that. Uh, in Minnesota here, we're, we have no tip sharing whatsoever. 
tip on the table belongs to the server. The server can decide what to do with it. If they want to share, great. If they don't, that's great. That doesn't exist in a lot of, a lot of places. Uh, we get no tip credit either. Some places will take the minimum wage and cut it in half as a tip credit. But uh, that, And that's part of the new normal is uh, either get rid of the tip credit and put it every, uh, have every restaurant in the country operate with no tip credit or make it a law that every res- every state has to have a tip credit for restaurants especially. The government has gotten into the restaurant business in many ways, and that's the one that I think is the most invasive. Uh, so I was hoping that would be part of the new normal that we'd get the government out of the out of the business. Out so when you say out of the business, you mean uh, like removing these laws of tipping or whatever? Yeah, removing the laws that help that help us run our businesses, and you know that they they you know by having minimum wages that are maybe good for manufacturing. They're old laws. They don't they don't make sense anymore. Some They're are now, some are really really new. The the tipping thing in Minnesota is like in the early eighties, I think. Yeah, but I feel like. And I think that's back to the example of how fast things are changing right now, where yeah. like they're just like they're not relevant anymore, right. and and that we were all doing the same thing in the eighties. I feel like we're using the same model. Oh sure. So now every every restaurant used the same model. Where now there's yeah. different models, and like how what, get get the heck out of our way, government! Right. Like you're slowing us down. Exactly, uh, and so that's I, what I was hoping would be part of the new normal. The other part would be the pay equity. Uh, the other part would be, uh, how pricing is very crucial to the restaurant Mm -hmm. that, uh, owners have to stop subsidizing, uh, the diner by taking something that needs to be $18 and is now charging only 14 or $15. Yeah. Uh, but that's exactly what my parents struggled with. So the reason why I started this podcast is because I grew up three years old. The yeah, restaurant yeah, the was my daycare. Yeah, right. You know, right. and I saw the lines out the door every weekend. I saw how people, how happy they were, right. and how pleased they were, and how much love there was for my mom and my dad with the the community. Sure. And I just remember thinking to myself, why do we struggle paying the mortgage? Mm-hmm. You know, I have vivid memories of my mom crying at the mm-hmm. kitchen table trying to figure it out, and it's because they gave food away. My dad's portions of pancakes literally flopped over the sides of the plates, and they weren't small plates. Yeah, he loaded that plate with home fries, and like sure. he he had a big appetite too. He he was feeding the people the way he liked to eat. Yeah, and he was giving he was charging a dollar less than everybody else oh. because he didn't think that the location was good enough to drop. Like he he thought people needed to know about the deal to come. Uh-huh. So we were doing all this volume, but we weren't making any money on it. And we were giving away too much food. Yeah. There, he was so alone. his, his, his prices were lower. Mm. His portions were higher mm-hmm. by a lot. Mm-hmm. And other than, but even it just goes to show that if you don't, you know, if you don't charge what you're worth, if you don't do the, the menu engineering, if you don't know where every penny is going, yeah. if you're not doing the inventory, you know, well, you know, I've talked to a few restaurant owners about that new normal as well. But uh, one restaurateur said, if the guy down the street raises his prices, I'll raise mine. He's afraid to be the first one through the wall to raise the prices where they should be. I don't be. think people care about 25 cents as much as restaurant owners think they do. Well, but it's not 25 cents. It's well, like it's dollar. $2. Yeah. yeah. When it's 20, 25 cents, yeah, it's not that big a deal to anybody. But if it's $2... It it it's still. I don't think it'd still be any any bother. I I agree with you. Then they have to make then this the 
guest has to make the decision whether I go to get this burger here for $25 or I go to get a lesser a lesser burger, not as good as this one, uh, for $17. It communicates quality. But yeah. the other thing that it's going to do is it's going to give you the resources you need to exp- to deliver the experience that your guests expect. New normal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is what we need to communicate to people. Right. Charge what menu engineering to re- like <laughs> figure out to the penny what it costs you yeah every variable you can that goes into deliver the, the putting that plate on the table what does it cost like and then revert and then tack on your percentage oh sure and, and you want to make 15 percent tack on you want to make 20 percent might start getting if, if you want to make 40 percent, you might start running into some issues but you can definitely beat four percent yeah and and the, the data doesn't need to be that close you can really just take uh, whatever whatever is on the plate, the the uh, center of the plate, whatever garnish or whatever vegetable goes with it. All you really need are those costs. The rest of the stuff is minutia. Whether you use paper napkins or linen napkins, or uh, you're paying your employee twenty dollars or twenty five dollars an hour, all that will come. That'll be okay. It'll it'll come into line. But once you understand, like like you said, the cost of that dish, and charge for it accordingly, you're going to make a profit. Yeah. So, like, I've got this spreadsheet that you can put on your website as well. Yeah, it shows you what happens. And if you're watching the video portion of this, head over to uh, YouTube.com/slash/RestaurantUnstoppable. Please subscribe. These cameras are heavy. I don't <laughs> want to carry them around the country for nothing. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, but uh. If you if you look watching that, we'll try to have the the spreadsheet right there over there. Sure, sure, so, no problem um, for the listeners. Um, what are you seeing people? So, what are some of the creative ways people are are overcoming this uh, back of house, front of house wage disparity? And uh, like, what what are creative things have the people you've interviewed well done? Uh, some are using that service charge, which can be three percent to twenty five percent. There's no. So no, saying, no rule there. We're going to charge you 20% and don't of, tip us, but you can if you want to. No, not don't tip us, just tip. You know, because a, a lot of restaurants don't say anything about tipping. They're going to charge you 20% service uh, charge. Uh, a service charge that, and they'll tell you that belongs to the restaurant to do with what they need to do, but they don't say anything about no tipping or. So or you can what tip to on top with, of that. You can t- yeah. They kind of expect you to, yeah. actually. But, I don't think you should tip on top of that. No, you shouldn't. Uh, but then the server doesn't get. But if the here's the thing of the for the sorry, go ahead. The well, because the server's still being paid minimum wage at that point. Yeah. But if the server is now being paid twenty five to thirty dollars an hour, basically a, a fifty five thousand dollar a year salary uh, that shouldn't need tips at that point, and it's all that money that was a service charge. Really should just be in the price of the food. Yeah. I kind of push back sometimes on the servers who expect a twenty percent tip, regardless, because mm-hmm. I think right. it makes lazy servers. It does. It can. I, sure. And I, I'm not saying people don't deserve to get tipped, but I'm saying you're not entitled to it. Well, again, it's because <laughs> not sir, a twenty percent. Yeah, maybe a ten percent. Like you don't just you don't get to sh- just show up to your job and expect to make the most money. No, and uh, they, they, they shouldn't that. expect a tip, and that's that's where I'm getting at it too. The servers and even cooks that are that are in the business right now, a lot of them are working because it's a way to get someplace else in their life. Uh, the, for servers, it's the tip. For cooks, it's the experience that they can then take to their next job. 
but you know, if everybody gets paid better, uh, you know, everybody at that fifty-five, sixty thousand dollar a year level, they'll stay. Yeah, there's no reason to go. Yeah, and they'll get better and better and better. Right. One one thing I've seen, I'm curious if you've talked to anybody. Have you done anybody who rotates kitchen in front of house? I have not, but I know that. Yeah, I've heard about that. Sure. Just interviewed David Vienna, who's doing that in New Jersey. I've had a guest in New Hampshire on the show that does that. Oh, okay. I think it's a cool model. Yeah. But the challenge with that is not everybody has the chops to do front of house right. and front and right. back of house work. Right. It does help uh, the, the the staff more cohesive a little bit. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, there are cooks and there are servers. And- you got to have a high standard on who you hire because yeah. that's a very special individual right. who can right. do all those things. Yeah, it is. Uh, but there, there are those individuals out there, and yeah. they're making good money. Yeah, you know, and they get the their days are constantly changing. They sure. don't get into you know, uh, they don't get bored because right. they're constantly doing different things. Yeah, sure. Uh, but we, I mean, is there anything else in terms of tipping that we haven't discussed? Well, with different models, anything that we haven't gone out now's the time to get it out. Well, we have to somehow teach the consumer how not to do it. They're so ingrained that they have to that they feel bad. Uh, I know a lot of people who will pay that service charge, leave a tip anyway, even though they say there's no tipping because they feel that they need to do that for their own good. So they feel better about themselves. Uh, and that really came from this you know, time after the civil war when uh, restaurant cooks and servers weren't paid at all. They were paid in tips and uh, it just kept getting worse and worse over the years even uh, wages came into the, the the combination, but still the guest was you know, shelling out ten percent, eighteen percent, twenty percent, just because they f- they feel guilty if they don't. That's going to be the hardest thing to, to change is the the guilt and self loathing yeah. the customer has well when they don't tip. I think this is, this comes back to the responsibility of the, the the industry to educate the consumer, right? Back to like where we started, where like if 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 we transform the restaurant industry, we will transform the world. We have to make the change before the consumer changes. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So, um, well, there's there's a way to do it, and it's going to take a big marketing campaign, and that's kind of what the NRA is for the National Restaurant yeah, Association. Yeah, not the other one. I hate that we have to say that. <laughs> there, anyway, or no, at any of the other food organizations or websites or magazines podcasts yeah podcasts uh keep promoting you know going in that direction and so so owners will feel more comfortable well, we got to gotta educate that. owners first so the owner can turn around and educate the consumer right exactly and i think eventually and by eventually you know it could be 30 40 years i think it could be a two three years no I don't think so. I want, but I think uh, it's exponential, man. It's exponential. <laughs> I think we forget that the world we live in, information's moving, culture is transforming so fast. I think about my perspective and our and like the the conversation around race and oh, quality sure. and mm-hmm. sexuality. When I was a kid, thirty years ago, like there were no conversations. Yeah, if you were gay or whatever or a different a minority of some sort, <laughs> like there. I, I grew up in New Hampshire where there wasn't a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. Like you were teased. And to think about where we are now, just in like 20 years of like the cultural fluidity mm-hmm. of, of open-mindedness and welcoming people. 
I think we're, I think this thing's going to be accelerated. Yeah. I think that culture yeah. is changing so fast and it's because of information flowing and because you don't have people at the very top controlling the narrative, <laughs> you know, like there, I, I don't know, maybe you're right. 20 years, but I hope we're, we meet in the middle. Maybe well, somewhere yeah, in like 10 think, years. <laughs> the, the more uh, owners we get involved, the education process will speed up. Yeah. You know, if you only have two or three, it's going to take a long time. So, and that's, you know, that's a hard part to convince are these guys who have been operating restaurants for 20 years. They're, you know, they, they have yeah. a good solid business. Why change? I'm sure there's thousands of restaurants doing it now. The thing is, they're just Maybe. not, they're just not the Danny Myers and the, the, yeah. the, what, Dirt Candy. Of Dirt Candy, yeah. These people have media and publicity. Sure. I know there's people out there doing it. Well, sure. If Danny went back to it. Yeah. Then I think that would help a lot. Right. The fact that he pulled out scares a lot of people. Because uh, here's like a very successful restaurateur. He did no tipping. He was Good. losing his people. That's the, yeah. the, from what I understand. Yeah. Well, it is also during the pandemic and right. that didn't help. No. Toby, I've really loved today's conversation. Okay. Friend. We're over the two hour mark. Uh, it goes by so fast. It does. Well, wow. uh, you were a great guest. Yeah. And, uh, well, you're a good interviewer. Thank you very much, man. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Um, again, uh, tell us how we can get in touch with you, how we can follow you and follow your podcast. Well, the podcasts are on any streamer you want. Just uh, uh, search for Restaurant Legends. It's on TuneIn, iHeartRadio, all those places. Or go to the website, which is restaurantlegends.com, which you can find a link to, hopefully, <laughs> this interview and other information. And there's a link to an email. If you want to send me an email, tell me how great I am. You had a couple books um, oh, that you yeah. brought to the table. I don't know if you want to give a shout out to these authors. I've had Corey Mintz on the show. Yeah, and I can't wait. I'm like halfway through the book. And when I get done with it, I'm going to give him a buzz. So the Corey Mintz book is the, the, the Next Supper. The Next Supper. And it's very interesting. It goes into a lot of detail. A lot of the stuff we talked about today. Yeah, a lot of it, yeah. But this is the most interesting one. I just want me to hold it up. Yeah. The, uh, the Itching Palm. Itching Palm. What's the subtitle there? Uh, the Study of... Yeah, a study of the habit of tipping in America. Oh, I might have to pick that one up. And that was written in 1918. I can't get it signed by the author, unfortunately. No, no. <laughs> and he goes into tipping not just restaurants, but everywhere. Yeah. How in 1918, you were expected to tip you know, the guy shining your shoes, the guy opening the door for you at the hotel. Everybody got a tip. I don't mind the idea of tipping and being generous with money like that because – I, I am in, I do believe in conscious capitalism. I do believe in generosity. I do believe mm-hmm. in an abundance mindset. Um, but well, I don't sure. think I think you should do those things when people have earned them. It's well, a, and that's that's where he was getting yeah. at it too. And it's and the most exciting part for me was when this was written. Now this was written ninety years ago, eighty years ago, whatever. And we're in the same spot. You know, some of those industries have gone away from tipping. History repeats. It's a pendulum. It doesn't repeat. It holds <laughs> steady <laughs> with a iron fist. Yeah. So, and he didn't really have any solutions other than some of the stuff we've talked about. And this ownership changing their view of it. Consumers changing their view of it. But, uh, like I said, the most interesting part, that in 1918 this problem was there and we did nothing. Yeah. Toby. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah. We can't say goodbye without having you call somebody out. You've actually already been super generous. I will okay. say um, you introduced me to Dave Anderson from right. Dave's Famous Barbecue. Right. He introduced me to Steve. Say his last name. Schusler. Schusler. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, who was the founder of the Rainforest Cafe. Right. And I know people are like, are we really going to have a theme restaurant for, <laughs> on the show? 
I'm sure he's going to have amazing lessons for us. He has a restaurant yeah. in Disney that does 50 million a year. Uh, right no. So themed restaurants haven't gone. I mean, no. they're not like they used to be as prolific yeah. as they used to be, but there's a place for him. Yeah. He's a great showman. Actually, it, I knew him in Chicago a little bit as well. We both came up here right about the same time. Uh, he had a, a restaurant called Jukebox Saturday Night. And it was right next to the theater that had the first uh, performances of Grease. And Jukebox was a, a 50s-themed restaurant. In fact, he even had a 57 Chevy sticking out of the the, uh, the building. And it was all lit up. A great showman. He's a master on experience. Yeah, he's a great. He was. He is. Yeah. So you'll have a very exciting yeah. interview, especially at the lab. Was there anyone else you wanted to call out? Well, I had mentioned Daniel Del Prado here in uh, Minneapolis. Talking to him tomorrow. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Daniel has done exciting things with restaurants. He's from Argentina, but uh, he's got restaurants that are, he's got a great pizza restaurant. I forgot the name of it, but he's uh, uh, like four or five other restaurants right now. I think he's at eight total. Eight restaurants. Yeah. yeah, he's just been, and he does every one well. Uh, you walked. Into, I was wondering. I was afraid that he was going to be the one that is mediocre. No. Knows, I was like, "Oh God, I hope it's not Daniel." Yeah, he's got the yeah. <laughs> no, he's got the formula. You know, because the first time I went into Martina, which is now a couple of years ago, felt right. Uh, you now the hostess was doing the right thing, servers were doing the right thing. I, I sat near the kitchen on purpose. Uh, the cooks were doing the right thing. The food was great. The ambiance was great. They were friendly and informal. So that just told me he got it. You know, I could see how he set up the service bar, and it was correct. And that's one of the hardest things to set up for for anybody. But uh, I think Daniel, uh, hopefully he won't get too big because that's going to be harder and harder to I'll, to, I'll tell him that, you, that. You, were, you have concerns that he's going to get too big. <laughs> <laughs> you can also tell him that I just, I just love his restaurants. I will, so. for sure. Okay. Toby, thank you so much, my friend. Uh, thank you for... Uh, welcoming into your home. Let me share your sure. story. Let me share your no perspectives, problem. chopping it up with me. Sure. This is a little more two way than usual. Uh, I feel like having another podcaster on the show <laughs> kind of gave me that liberty to have oh, more yeah. of a conversation. Absolutely. I love it. Um, and this is where I say there is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Right, thank, thank you so you. much. Alrighty. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Toby Nidits, for coming on the show, for sharing a different perspective on how we can create a better, more evolved business model for the restaurant industry and uh, just sharing the perspective that you've gathered uh, in your many interviews with the restaurant legends. And he wanted to let me know that uh, we... Uh, have a spreadsheet in the show notes. So if you head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 999, there is a spreadsheet there that examines the current operating policies versus what can happen when prices increase to support pay equity and better profits. So if you're interested in that spreadsheet, go again to restaurantstoppable.com slash 999 and uh, get that spreadsheet. Also, make sure you subscribe to Toby's podcast, Restaurant Legends. He's doing great work over there. And uh, again, thank you so much, Toby, uh, for, for joining us and sharing your story. And if you are enjoying this podcast and you want more deep dive, intimate, in-person, on-site interviews, we need your support. Honestly, we are choosing to do it the hard way because we think the obstacle is the way. 
but the only way we can continue to do this is if we get your support and the best way right now you can support this podcast is by joining restaurant unstoppable network where we're bringing together our guests, our listeners around this idea of sharing knowledge, being students together, uh, lifting each other up and, and, you know, paying it forward. And I, th- I think if we come together, we can go much further. And if you're a new restaurant owner, maybe you don't know a lot of other restaurant owners and you need that person you can confide in and just listen. And that's what the network is. And we're also trying to connect you with all the tools and services that have been recommended on the show. Uh, and we're trying to do some special stuff over there. So, uh, that is the best way to support what we're trying to do here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And I'll be honest, I, I, about a year and a half ago, I had to choose to lean into the podcast and to make better in-person, on-site interviews or to lean into the network. And I chose to, to focus on the podcast. But now that the podcast is at a place where I feel like you know, I can continue that level of, of content on my own. We're shifting our focus to growing the network again, and we're going to be coming back stronger than ever before. So please, again, restaurantstoppablenetwork.com. And I can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this possible. Callan Miola, the newest member of our team for her work as a community manager. Jared Parisi for his content editing, audio editing, and copywriting. And then also Anna Tazin with The Good Kind for basically her executive support. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out.